All right, we are back. We've had a we've had a hiatus, Bob. I think this is like a week and a half without a posting. So I'm I'm happy to be back back in the game. Yeah, yeah, it's about time. You know, we're in February now, believe it or not. So we are uh, ready to go with another podcast. Very exciting. And actually, today we are joined by uh, Vito Trifoletti, um, who uh, we'll we'll give Vito a moment to to jump into his career. But it's a storied career as a CIO within the food services industry. And I and I think the I think what we're trying to do in the next few podcasts is take our cloud conversation and pivot it against industry and segment. And, you know, we've, I think we've done a, a good job talking about the cloud as a, you know, this is a platform, all the many different permutations of it. But I think, you know, in the end, a lot of this boils down to how are industries leveraging it for, you know, their better. Um, and I knew nobody better to talk about the food services industry than Vito. So Vito, welcome. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's good to be online and and talking to real people. It's it's been a, a pretty isolated lifestyle the last year or so. It has actually, Bob. You've got a pretty interesting story. I I mean, I want to sp- spend like a minute talking about how isolated life can get in our world, for through unintended consequences. That's right. I'm. Uh, I, what do they say in football? You're playing hurt. My technology's hurt <laughs> today. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, I had some work done in the yard and, uh, I found my internet slash cable line was next to a sprinkler head that was getting, um, changed or moved out and, uh, accidentally, uh, sliced it. So I've been out of cable or, uh, and internet for um, about 24 hours, uh, in knock on wood and I might be back in uh, an hour or two when they come back to repair it but i just kept thinking if this was next sunday super bowl sunday that would have been a huge problem yeah so i'm happy that it happened when it happened um but it's amazing um you know how isolated and quiet you feel when you don't have any um internet or cable and down here we get that sometimes because of hurricanes but uh, this one was, uh, you know, happened by accident. So, but, you know, yeah. we're fighting through it. Very apropos for our, our podcast, too, because in a way you've been cut okay. off from the cloud. Yes. So, um, Vito, been. it's been our tradition. Oh, yeah, you have. Yes. <laughs> the tradition here has been, you know, usually to start off our, our conversations by giving our guests an opportunity to kind of walk through their in their career and it's always been fascinating what we've learned along the way and you know up until now it's been kind of how did you get into the tech industry but i think you know with you it could kind of meander a couple places it's how did you get into you know tech how'd you get into food services what what brings you to this moment here well uh you know i've i've worked for uh 25 years in food it and uh those are my Two, two of my most favorite things, technology and, and food. Uh, yes. my, 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 I grew up, my mom was a great cook. She still is. Uh, some, some great Italian food. Uh, just, you know, food brings about an emotional connection and, and a very visceral connection around memories and moments. Uh, so food has always been just a, a really interesting place to work. And technology, you know, it's just... A, 25 years, you see a lot of change and it just, the, the change pace 
is has has accelerated uh, in particular over the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, yeah, so food and technology have always been fun. I, I grew up at Kraft Foods uh, and, and had some opportunities to do some neat things in a very large uh, global organization, uh, then became CIO of Preferred Meals. And uh, that was a, a small food service company focused on K-12 schools, uh, feeding kids in the school cafeterias, generally in large urban centers in the U.S. and, and a lot of underprivileged kids. So I, I found that to be a, a calling uh, of sorts on, on a number of levels of helping people that are disadvantaged and, and bringing great meals to them uh, where, where they needed it and using technology to do that. And... Uh, then uh, Preferred Meals was acquired by a company called Elio North America, which was uh, entering the U.S. market. It's a Paris, France-based company. And I was invited to be the CIO of Elio North America a little over three years ago and moved from Chicago to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I am today. Yeah, and in February, that's a really good thing. So it, it, it certainly is, especially watching all the snowfall. Uh, I, I know what it's like uh, digging out the driveway and uh, trying to navigate those roads in Chicago. But uh, yeah, Elio North America, it's a, a, a great organization. It's uh, they do more than just K-12 uh, school food. Uh, you know, they they work in hospitals and prisons and uh, high end dining and events, uh, even catered the Super Bowl in Miami last year. Uh, and uh, should be doing the Super Bowl in Tampa as well. It'll be limited, uh, but uh, you know there's still food service opportunities. Yeah, and we have a, we have a connection there because we have a couple of Floridians on this call. Um, Blair, our producer, although he's further south, I think, and um, Bob, who I think you're you're right there. You're you're in sort of ground zero, right? Well, I'm I'm more uh, closer to Orlando. But um, yeah, I, I'm right in between, so I'm not far from Tampa. Probably about two hours. Has the Tampa? You know, I'm, I'm about the same. I'm about I'm about uh, an hour hour north of Orlando, so about two hours from Tampa. Has Tampa fever spread out that far? Well, it's more like Tom Brady fever, really. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> I, I think it is. Yeah, a lot a lot of people are excited about it. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a fun ride watching him kind of elevate that team this year so you know it's interesting mostly being at home right a home stadium um the first time that's ever happened so it's it's going to be very interesting game next week for sure but i i wouldn't bet against the chiefs yeah i, yeah, I, I don't yeah I agree. and, and to, to, sorry to interrupt uh just in the spirit of full disclosure i i, I do need to mention that i'm no longer with Elio north america as of october uh of 2020 uh, due to COVID and and the impact on on the food service industry, as you can all imagine, uh, there were some difficult business decisions that need to be made. And I'm currently in career transition at this point, and and looking forward to the next opportunity. Yeah, and I think you know, and okay. you and I had a chance to talk um, last weekend a bit about things, and and I think that that actually opens it up to a couple conversations, you know, in terms of. Uh, you know, I, I know you've got an entrepreneurial bent to you, and I, I definitely want to talk about that in terms of what you know, how you can leverage the cloud in that world. But, but let's go back to food services because, you know, when I, you know, what 
Agreed. I think food is one of my favorite things without question. And I, you know, but I'm always, I always think about food within the construct of I go to a restaurant or I go to the grocery store. I never, ever do it enough justice as it relates to what I would call supply chain. And, and I kind of put your career a bit in that bucket, you know, in the sense that it's providing, you know, food to institutions and, you know, large swaths of our organ, you know, of our country. And there's so much about that that I think people aren't aware of. And, you know, finding efficiencies and and leveraging technology to make that a better, stronger process. I think you could probably, it could be great to hear you talk about that for a bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, the uh, the food service industry and the, and the food industry in general, I think COVID and, and the pandemic has opened everyone's eyes to what is essential and, and essential workers. And keeping people fed is, is really essential. Yeah. Uh, the grocery stores, you know, those are one of the few things that when communities go on full lockdown and you're not allowed to leave your house except for essential activities, going to the grocery store is one of those essential activities. Uh, restaurants, you know, this has been a, a, one of the most challenging times I think any of us can ever imagine for restaurants that already in normal times operate on very thin margins and to try to manage labor and anticipate how much food do they need to buy, how much labor do they need to hire, what hours of service do they need to be open. Those are all challenges in normal times and, and it has just been magnified with the pandemic, uh, with, with food and fresh items, you're, you're always guarding against spoilage. Uh, you don't want to order too much. You don't want to order too little. Uh, you need to make sure that you have the, the right items in stock for the menu, forecasting the, the quantities and types of food items that are on that menu is a, a challenge for a small local, you know, one location operation. Now imagine trying to do that across thousands of locations across the United States in different communities with different rules and regulations that are constantly changing week to week, month to month based on, you know, the governor says, we're, we're going to do this now. And suddenly you're going to need to pivot. Uh, the introduction of contactless, uh, you know, making sure people can order ahead or use their phone to see the menu, order an item, and then come pick it up. Or the advent of what you're seeing with DoorDash and Uber Eats and, and the delivery model. And uh, the, the explosion of ghost kitchens. Uh, ghost kitchens are you know, restaurants that you never go there. You don't even know where it is. It could be an industrial warehouse somewhere and they're preparing food and it's, all, it's a complete delivery model. Uh, so the, the, the amount of change that's been injected into the food service industry on a broad scope has just been massive. The, the amount of digital transformation that's taken place in this industry over the last year, it's like five or maybe even 10 years of, of digital innovation that's just been accelerated because of necessity. There's no other way to survive other than use technology. Yeah, and and that's been a theme without question. And so, what what I get curious about is as you talk, I think about you know, and I and I'm, I have no reason to believe that this is accurate, but things like artificial intelligence or ways to forecast more effectively within 
you know, the many different patterns that may exist within your business. But what what when you think about transformation over the last year that has leaped five to 10 years, what what's what examples are there? What is it that you thought never would have happened, you know, and it had this not occurred? QR codes on on tables is one. You know, it's it's no longer you're handed a menu. You bring mm-hmm. your own phone. It has your own you know, germs and bacteria on the phone. So that's the only thing you're you're going to touch. You scan the barcode, you pop up the menu, you order your item, it goes back to the kitchen. There's a kitchen printer that's back there for the cooks. They know what to prepare. You have an order number. And, and then the, the, the fulfillment of that order can take place in a number of ways. A server could bring it to your table. Uh, they could put it in a bag and, and put it at a pickup location. Or it can go to a delivery driver and be delivered straight to your door. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny from my perspective. It was just the QR code pulling up a menu, but as with anything in this space, it's always the back end that's the fascinating part. The part, the part that it's automating the fulfillment on the back end with the kitchen. That's um, that's fair. Really, yeah, good. and you and, know, and yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You know, Vita. One of the things that's interesting to me is, uh, you know. Back in our day, we used to always pick up the phone and dial for a pizza, right? And then they were kind of the first innovators to take that to a web or to an app and being able to do that. And now we don't even really think about picking up the phone to do that. We just, you know, use our iPhone or whatever. What I found it was interesting is basically every other type of food service had to get up and running very quickly on that, whether it's your, you know, your local diner or uh, a big chain that obviously might have been there a little bit earlier. But to me, it was very interesting how quickly that they had to get to the web and have that type of ordering now. So now no matter, you know, if it's your local deli or um, a large chain, you can do that right on your phone. And, you know, you're not calling, which means you don't need people answering the phone and they can do other things. So it, that that was very interesting to me how quickly that happened during the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. And if you look, there's lots of case studies on Domino's, uh, the pizza company, and and really they're a digital first company and, and they were way ahead of the curve. But you're right. Uh, the, the pandemic caused rapid adoption for so many small mom and pop companies, and they're able to do it through the cloud. You know, that's the the, the amazing thing about what timing, what, what amazing timing to have all of these technology capabilities that you can rapidly stand up. They're pretty easy and inexpensive to use. It's as a service, so it's a monthly fee. You don't need to buy a bunch of infrastructure. You might need uh, a, a an advanced point of sale system that's cloud enabled, but that also introduces PCI credit card compliance for the from the merchant processors. So there's tons of advantages for small food service companies and, and even the large ones to take advantage of the this explosion of cloud technology that's become available over, over the last five to 10 years and really embrace it. And, and I think at this point, it will, we will get back to normal times eventually when that is, none of us knows. But when that happens, I don't see the technology going away. I, I think this has opened the eyes of so many operators that there, there are clear advantages 
from a, uh, a forecasting and predictability perspective on not just the food items, but also the labor. And, and to your point, you know, getting people out of the business of taking phone calls for orders and, you know, it's you have communication issues where they, you may have ordered a, a sausage and pepperoni, but they only wrote down sausage or the handwriting wasn't clear. Those mistakes go away with technology. And now you've freed up a person that no longer has to answer the phone and, and can do more other interesting value added things that uh, provides a better service for the client. Well, so right, I, it really I, was a oh, waste of labor, but yep, no, it just it's just interesting that I, I really love that point too. Um, you know, you're paying somebody uh, that's a really important part of your business to answer the phone, and and you're right. Now that person can be doing something else, um, getting orders out uh, because they don't have to sit on the phone all day. So, like you said, we talk a lot about how bad 2020 was and how bad the pandemic is. But there are going to be some things that come out of it that are, are positives. And I think that is definitely one for sure. So thank you for that. Completely agree. And of course, while we were talking, Blair, our producer, pinged us and said he was a Domino's. Did you say manager, Blair? Or were you? Yeah, I was I was a manager in a few stores. And uh, yeah, I remember the days where we'd have, you know, five you know, or six, you know, phone, people answering the phones and you'd be ringing, 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 and then you have your crew there. And then, you know, it was definitely a compare and contrast when technology took over and all the orders started coming in through the cloud or through the internet, because you would walk into the store to pick up a pizza. And it's almost, I actually thought it was almost like eerily, it was very quiet. You didn't have those people answering the phones anymore. You just had the orders coming in and printing out and then you have people making, making the pizzas. So that was definitely... But you're right, definitely right as far as I think the order improving order accuracy, especially with the uh, the pizzas, because it's not like you're writing up pepperoni. You know, you could be writing P for pepperoni, or I think R was black olives or something like that. But it could be easy for someone to, you know, miss miswrite a letter. But if it's on a, you know, you, on the computer, it's just typed in at the end user's uh, uh, computer at home, and it prints out exactly what they want at the uh, at the terminal at the uh, make line. You know, actually, Vito brings up something that I had I had forgotten, which was, you know, just the, there are many case studies tied to Domino's and, and technology in the cloud. And one of the early ones, and this is perfect timing because we're upon the Super Bowl, is, you know, if you if you look at the I guess I guess if you look at Domino's business, you know, the vast majority of their business every week comes on, you know, a Friday or Saturday. But then the you know, the huge there's this huge number of pizzas that get delivered on in about Super Bowl. And, you know, when the cloud was first being introduced, they recognized that if they looked at their own infrastructure, they had built up this infrastructure, you know, the servers and everything else to support, in essence, that one day, which is when they were at the peak of their business, they needed to build an infrastructure and the investment was for that one day. But then through the rest of the year, you know, maybe that infrastructure got to, you know, X capacity, but nowhere near what it did during the Super Bowl. So when the cloud came out, they realized that they could build their online, let's call it um, platform, if you will, so that it could scale using IaaS, you know, infrastructure as a service. So they weren't, you know, they didn't have the investment of all of, you know, the servers and the racks and so forth. They were investing based on consumption and it ended up being an incredible saver for them. And, and that became one of the very first clear case studies. And I believe it was an Azure case study way, way back in the day. And of course, everything has evolved since then. 
but um, you know, very apropos given that we're on the week before the the Super Bowl. That's great. Hey, Vito, I got a question about your K through 12 experience, and it really doesn't have to deal with cloud, but um, it, it's more about the meals and understanding. Um, you know, the, the children that you're feeding in, in that environment. And I understand there's a little bit of argument between healthy foods and what, what kids will eat at that age. And um, I just wondered how your organization handled that. Was there any technology that went into something like that? And how did you and your organization kind of handle the difference between health and then the stuff that kids will eat in the K-12 space? Sure. Uh, so th those are great questions. And, and I have a lot of passion. I've spent a lot of time in the K-12 food service space. So, so the first thing in K-12 food that you need to understand is, does that school or school district participate in the USDA National School Lunch Program? Because school districts have a choice to make. They can either participate or they cannot participate. If they participate in the National School Lunch Program, there are federal subsidies that are available to help supplement that school lunch program. And the economics of a K-12 cafeteria, depending on the profile of the student body, meaning if you're in a very well-to-do neighborhood with well-to-do school district uh, it or even a private school, they may not need the money from the National School Lunch Program, in which case they can serve whatever they'd like. They, there's no regulation. There's, there's no, uh, you know, people refer to it as the Michelle Obama regulations, but that's not really true. It's, it's the USDA. Uh, and the those guidelines don't need to be followed for a school district that, that is not getting those subsidy dollars. However, for the vast majority of schools in the United States, they do participate in the National School Lunch Program. And as such, there are very specific nutritional guidelines that go along with that, which require schools to uh, serve uh, whole grain items, uh, offer fruits and vegetables and, and milk, and, and you're, you're needing to provide the five main items of, uh, of uh, a main entree, uh, a milk, uh, a fruit, a vegetable, and a bread. And uh, those can come in different forms. Uh, so you can imagine a pizza. Uh, a pizza could uh, meet the requirements for the protein and the bread. Uh, and then you need to serve the, the fruit. And the way the school lunch program works is the child, as they go through that lunch line, they must take three out of the five items in order to qualify as a reimbursable meal in the USDA program. And, and there are guidelines around tracking what was offered on that day, what was the draw, how many students, uh, students can apply for uh, being a, a part of the free lunch program. Uh, students can apply to be on a reduced uh, price program. 
and or students can you know pay the full price but even the full price meal is subsidized and a lot of parents don't realize this that even if your child is paying full price for the school lunch there's still a subsidy that comes along with that because it's part of the national school lunch program uh, so you know the technologies that we've employed in the past and i i can't go into a lot of detail, but I'll just give you some general ideas is uh, you start with ensuring that that menu of items is going to comply with the National School Lunch Guidelines and that the items on the menu, uh, you know, are going to have a certain draw because I think anyone with kids knows that kids tend to like certain items and they tend to not like other items. Um, and and the draw on that or, or you know, we refer to it as the draw, you can think of it as the consumption pattern, uh, can vary from child to child, school to school, community to community, because some items are very popular in the South and not popular in the North. Some items on the menu are very desirable on the West Coast, uh, but not on the East Coast. And and so forecasting becomes a, a big play there because you, you are always guarding against waste. Uh, so yeah. can I can I jump in really quick because I, I find that really super interesting. So there's consumption as in what was actually consumed by the kids, and then there's purchasing as in terms of what was purchased by the district. But I think what you're talking about is just actual consumption. These were the per units that were selected by the kids, and that's yeah, well, what that's what we're measuring. Yeah. Well, yeah. To be clear, so consumption is measured by what was on their tray when they went through the cash register line. Perfect. Nobody, okay. Nobody's tracking what they actually eat and put in their mouths. Right. <laughs> yes, that that is probably good and safe. <laughs> but but in yeah. terms of yeah, what they put in their what they put on their tray, I think is interesting in the sense that it's more than just what the district bought. And I think that's important. And 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 in and I think what you're saying is you're actually tracking that and monitoring that and you can measure it and that really can help in terms of being more thoughtful in terms of what is produced. So that's, I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And and trying to survey the children and survey the teachers to understand what do they like, what don't they like, because we want to make sure that we're putting items that they will enjoy on the menu while still working inside that national school lunch program framework, because you can't serve them pizza every day. They, they would love to have pizza every day. Uh, there, there are some things that you can do around having a two-choice menu where you can have, well, today it's either pizza or it's chicken nuggets, or the next day it might be hot dogs or hamburgers. And so you can give them a choice. They can choose one or the other, uh, but you can't put the same item on the menu every single day. And so the, you know, for Elior and organizations like Elior, you're, you're providing this intelligence to the schools helping them guide what they put on their menus and in in doing so you're helping them you know allow their kids to achieve nutritional goals but at the same time achieve the economic goals that may be out there in terms of district and budgets and so forth i'm assuming those are the two drivers in that in that mechanism yeah i would add the third that um kids with empty bellies have a hard time learning and kids that have food in their belly tend to perform better on their scores and tests, uh, which is another driver for the school district. I mean, so awesome. it, it, 
is the economics, it is health and wellness, but it's also about education and test scores. And, okay, so p- perfect. I love that. So if you looked at those three criteria and, you know, where your mission has been over the last several years as, you know, as Vito, as Elior, you know, at Preferred, are there improvements? Is it getting better? Uh, yeah, I think it it constantly gets better over time. Uh, I, you know, when those regulations changed, it was the first regulatory change in about 20 years uh, to the to the National School Lunch Nutrition Guidelines. Uh, there was definitely a dip uh, when the guidelines first came out. I think kids over time, you know, started to get used to, okay, this is what's on the menu at, at school. Uh, of course, the pandemic changed all that because <laughs> uh, yeah. kids you know, weren't in school, but we, as a company, we still had a mission to feed those kids because for many of those kids, you know, that, that, that free lunch is, is critical. It's a critical thing for them. So there was a lot of pivoting that happened around, uh, five day meal packs and allowing parents to come to the school one day a week to pick up the week's worth of breakfast and lunch, uh, for the kid and a five day meal pack. Uh, there's some school districts that made the choice to do reverse bus stops where the food would go on the bus and the bus driver would run the bus route in reverse. And the kids would come out to the bus stop and instead of getting on the bus, their food would be delivered to them. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, those are, that those is are, incredible. Yeah, it is. That's I mean, hearing, I did not know that. Stories. Yeah, I did not know any of that. That's, you know, and it's great to hear too. And, and we did we did deploy some new technology to help enable uh, those things so that uh, parents could order online uh, and, and still see the menu and still be compliant to the National School Lunch Program. But we needed a way to capture the orders differently because typically the orders would be would come in from the teacher in the classroom and in the morning so that the, the cafeteria staff would know how much to cook of certain items. And, you know, it's within a, a tolerance level uh, so that you try to make sure that who's ever eating the last lunch period, uh, you know, if we say we have, we're having a two-choice menu, you run the risk, and it, it does happen, where uh, the pizza becomes so popular that by the time the last kids get to the lunch uh, period, uh, we've run out of pizza, and now all all we have are cheeseburgers. Yeah, no, that, so, that's a so that's a dissatisfier, and kids cry, and it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah, no, I um, I have to say, I I remember pizza growing up at school, and that being, you know, that's been a constant over the generations. Is that that pizza is definitely preferred. And I remember actually seeing how it was made, Vito. You and I had a chance to work together in a past chapter and at Preferred, I remember getting the chance to walk through the, um, I don't want to say factory, but assembly area. And it was really, really fascinating in terms of all the many different elements of producing food at the scale and in such a way that it was, you know, obviously safe and and wholesome and watching the pizza get made was really cool. That was, that was fun. The whole thing was. Yeah. It's, it's mesmerizing. It is. Uh, you know, really how, on YouTube, how it's made is one of my favorite YouTube channels. Okay. I have not. So the channel is actually how it's made. Is that, and so you can put anything in there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a, it's a show about how things are made. I've never 
Oh, God, now I'm going to end up going to it. That is so interesting. Now, here we are on our podcast promoting a YouTube channel. That's great. Well, we're learning so much today. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. great. Burritos yeah. you know, is You know, Vito. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I, um, I just wanted to recap on something you said, um, because I had always heard that even in summer, right, um, a lot of kids go hungry because they don't get that meal, right? A lot. I know here in Florida, they do a breakfast and a lunch. And when they're not getting those nutritional meals every day for the, the folks that need them, um, it, that's, that's a big hit. And I worried about that in the pandemic. I wondered how are they going to be able to get those meals? And to hear that, you know, an organization like you were with and the school districts did what they did to do the reverse busing, to do the box meals. Um, I mean, that that is heartwarming. That is exactly um, a great story of people coming together, technology coming together, and doing the right thing for people. And and that just warms my heart. I I love to hear stories like that because um, I, I would imagine for you it was also very fulfilling. Um, because those are the kind of things that, uh, you know, makes you happy about having a corporate job, but being able to be able to touch people's lives that way has just got to be an incredible feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mentioned earlier is a higher calling and, and you're touching right. on some of those points. Um, uh, you know, when I was a, a kid, I, I didn't grow up well to do and, uh, you know, I ate the school lunch and being able to help those, those kids that are out there today and, uh, put uh, a healthy, nutritious meal in their belly, that's, you know, that's purpose in life. And, and it's making a difference. It's making a difference in a lot of kids' lives across the country and not having them in school. You're absolutely right. It's, it's terrible for some of these kids. They're, they're going through a nightmare right now and, and they're home, you know, they're at home going through this nightmare alone. Uh, the summer, uh, the summer programs, you know, different communities offer summer programs, even in normal times. I think it's become more critical even now with the pandemic. Uh, and some of those are sponsored by park districts or they, they're sponsored by uh, local communities or counties or cities. Uh, the city of Philadelphia is a great example where they have what they call in the summertime, they, they call them play streets. And the, they essentially block off a street and designate a house uh, where all the meals are delivered to that house. And any kids in that neighborhood can come to that house and get a meal anytime. And it's paid for by the city of Philadelphia. They've been doing this for decades. Uh, and it's just a great example of how communities can uh, bridge that gap uh, during the summertime between the school years. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so let me, so let's kind of fast forward a bit if we could. The Eventually the pandemic will, you know, be mitigated and we'll return to some sense of what I guess we're calling the next normal uh, and kids will be back in school and, you know, we'll, we'll return to the many, many challenges that exist in a, you know, kind of typical year. What, what, in your opinion, you know, what else could be done? What, what's the next step? You know, how do we get better even from where we are today in terms of the mission that you've described? 
Yeah, I, th I think these the new technologies that are becoming more accessible to companies like uh, cloud solutions, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, even hybrid cloud to be able to, to move workloads from a, a data center into the cloud and back again. Uh, all of these things are really, they're ingredients and, and it's going to take you know, smart technology people and business people to understand what in ingredients are available and how do you bring those together to bake a cake that's new and, and novel. Uh, and, and like we said earlier, these technologies are not going away. They've opened a lot of people's eyes and, and there are new business models and new business processes that become enabled. Uh, an example is ghost kitchens. You know, ghost kitchens, historically, if you wanted to open a restaurant, you needed to uh, stand up some brick and mortar, have some tables, you know, take away, that sort of thing. Uh, but now you you can start a, a, a restaurant online and it's only online and, and the kitchen can be anywhere and uh, you can have some really nice items or some, you know, maybe a jalapeno cheeseburger that's just amazing that you're really good at making. Uh, food trucks are, are another good example of where uh, the, these food trucks can move from place to place and go to where the people are. Uh, you know, the, the back end side of things, uh, it's in food, it's all about getting scale and being able to run a lot of volume because with the food the food service industry is a, has always been a low margin industry and the way to get out of out of that problem is volume to move massive amounts through the system uh, to be able to source uh, items really from all over the globe uh, so you're you're sourcing food items depending on the season from different geographies and different continents and and being able to uh, have the traceability I think blockchain you know with with what's happening with some of the digital currencies but under underneath all of that is blockchain that is just perfect for uh, traceability and recall and, and chain of possession and, and ensuring that ingredients are, are, are pure and never, and not never thought about that, not I adulterated. Really, yeah. I really appreciate you applying blockchain to something else other than cryptocurrency, you know, and that's a very interesting thought what you just did. I hadn't, I hadn't had that conversation before. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, 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 the perspective here is you've got a, you have an industry food, it's been around forever. We, you know, humans have been eating forever and they will always eat. We, we have to eat to survive. It's an essential service. But these new technologies are allowing us to think in new creative ways to apply the technology and, and innovate and create new offerings that never existed before. And and uh, make that more accessible to to more consumers, but also more operators. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Cool, good framing. Um, all right, so let's let's pivot because what I want to do also is give us some time to talk about you know the next chapter, right? And you know, I I know that you you were uh, kind enough to do the disclaimer at the beginning of the call in terms of you know where you are and your career and, and kind of sussing out new chapters and new opportunities, which is always a fun, you know, can be and should be 
a, a fun moment in time. Um, and I know that, you know, in your case, it opens up, you know, it has opened up entrepreneurial opportunities as well as career, other career opportunities. And as we talked, you know, we, we had a conversation about um, Airbnb. We talked about, you know, the fact that it, you know, the cloud and new technologies do provide new opportunities to take a career in different directions. And I, I kind of just want to hear you talk about that because um, you've had some really great experiences in terms of having that head on. And I am a firm believer that the cloud does enable, you know, an entrepreneur in ways that others, other, other generations have not had. And I'd love to talk about that a bit. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial bug from a, a pretty young age when I was in high school. Uh, I would sit in class and there'd always be somebody that would show up to class without a pen. So I always kept about 10 pens on me ready to sell them for, for a buck. Uh, <laughs> Love you know, that. That, then uh, <laughs> nice. I, my, my buddy and I had a boat washing business where we washed and waxed boats for uh, well-to-do people in St. Louis where I grew up and uh, you know, we were always hustling. Uh, so uh, through college, I, I had a number of different jobs working at a lumberyard and uh, uh, at the Boat Harbor. And and as I got into the working world and started my career at Kraft Foods and working in IT, uh, my wife worked in uh, heart surgery in Chicago. And so we were both, you know, full-time working folks. And uh, we started investing in real estate uh, probably in our late 20s and uh, bought some rental properties and uh, rented them out as traditional, you know, 12 month leases. Uh, and then when we moved to Charlotte, we sold all, all of those properties and uh, took a year to kind of get settled into Charlotte and decided to buy a rental property. But instead of doing a traditional 12 year lease, we decided to uh, do an Airbnb model or short-term rental is probably a better way to describe it because Airbnb has essentially become the Kleenex of tissue. You know, it's, it's the brand. Uh, but there are lots of different short-term rental platforms that exist, VRBO, uh, Booking.com and, and others. Uh, Rentline is, is another one that's out there. So all of these are these are platforms and they're cloud-based platforms that enable a small entrepreneur that somebody has an asset and you want to share it. You know, it's kind of all part of the sharing economy, whether you're you're putting your you know your car to work as a, an Uber or a Lyft driver, or you have a rental property that instead of selling it on a on a one-year basis, you're selling it on a nightly basis. Uh, and so that has enabled uh, my wife and I to, uh, and it's mostly her. So I'll, I'll do credit. I, I'd have to say this is mostly my wife that's doing all the work around the hosting and listing and uh, dealing with clients because, you know, as a, a full-time CIO, I, I didn't have the time to de dedicate to that. But uh, she's really embraced uh, what's happening on these platforms and uh, uh, I'll, not not only the cloud technology around listing the properties and checking people in and you know getting ratings and and those things, but also leveraging IoT. Uh, so putting smart locks on the front door so that she can just give a code uh, to a guest rather than a key. Uh, so that's a one-time use code uh, that that guest can use for the duration of their stay, and after they leave, she cancels the code and they can you know no longer access the property. 
using things like ring cameras uh, to keep an eye on the property because you can't be there all the time. And uh, especially during the pandemic, we've, we've had guests that want to have big parties and that's not allowed. Uh, so you, you need to leverage these types of technologies to, to make sure that you're keeping an eye on things and uh, uh, other IoT items like smart thermostats, uh, being able to control the temperature of the house to make sure it's, it's at the right temperature and you're not wasting energy, uh, but that it's also comfortable for the guest. Uh, so the, all of these kind of technologies are available now and they're, they're very affordable. They're very accessible, uh, that didn't exist, you know, five years ago. I don't know how long Airbnb has been around, but, uh, it's just really exploded. And, and certainly during the pandemic, uh, the business model has been doing quite well, uh, because people, uh, value privacy. Uh, they don't want to be around, you know, in a, in a hotel with hundreds of other people. They, they want their own place uh, that they can isolate with a, their small pod of, of friends and family. And uh, so, yeah, that's just another example, I guess, of uh, how cloud technologies have become very accessible to small entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also another example of how, you know, there was this disruption of the pandemic, which completely radically shaped the hospitality industry. But then there was this subset, meaning, you know, air, well, the Airbnb slash Kleenex. And that that's become the the winner in all of this and, and cloud technologies enabling that, which is a really neat story. So what? OK, so in terms of your next chapter, do you see yourself moving into an entrepreneurial bent or staying in food services or maybe combining the two? Gosh, that's a great question, Elliot. Uh, yeah, I think all of those things, you know, it's like I said earlier, food and technology are, are some of my favorite things in life. Uh, I can't imagine ever completely getting away from technology. Uh, the ingredients are out there to bake cakes, you know, to put it all together, to take these different technologies and mash them together in a in new and novel ways. And I just see lots of opportunity, uh, lots of opportunity, both on the you know corporate side of going back and being a CIO for an organization that is interested in embracing these new technologies. But uh, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and I don't see that ever changing. And it's, it's something that it's a side hustle, you know, whether it becomes a full-time job, I suppose that could happen. Um, at, at this point, you know, this is the first career break that I've had in, in 25 years. So I'm just taking some time to reflect and, and learn a lot. I've been studying artificial intelligence and machine learning and blockchain to just really get kind of down in the weeds with it and, and understand it at a more granular level than, uh, you know, not just the high level. Because uh, I just see lots of opportunities for organizations of all, all sizes and, and shapes to to deploy these technologies in a way that makes sense and, and can be, uh, you know, quite fulfilling. Yeah, really. Neat. Well, I'm first, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us again. And, and of course, you know, wish you the best with 
you know, where you are right now. I hope you're enjoying the time, you know, to just reflect and, of course, wish you the best in terms of where all this takes you. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. But thank, thank you, Vito. We really appreciate you being part of this. Thank you. Thanks, Vito.